Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Teamwork A Better Way podcast. I'm Christian Napier, and I am joined by my illustrious and decorated co-host, Spencer Horn. Spencer, how are you doing this fine day? Wonderful, Christian. How are you? I am doing well. A little bit of snow, just a dusting outside. Uh, did you guys get any snow? We did. We got uh, actually a little more than a dusting, which was great. And uh, I absolutely love that. I mean, here we are in February and we're getting still a ton of snow. Jan and I went, I went snowshoeing twice last week, once uh, on Saturday with, with Jana and uh, it was just so beautiful. The, the, this time of year, we get this fresh snow and then it warms up after, you know, nine, 10 o'clock. It's, uh, it's like, I don't know, sunshine and sun tanning and, and cool. It, it's just a wonderful combination for me. How about you? What do you think about yeah, it? Yeah, well, I mean, after we dug out of last week's storm, right? <laughs> oh we, gosh, yeah. we had a ton of snow there. Uh, it's been beautiful. We really wanted to go for a drive, but um, other things got in the way of that, and that's okay. But, but uh, yeah, it's because I, you're I, so I love busy. I love this weather. I love this time of year. I love seeing snow on the mountains. Uh, yeah, me too. It just makes me happy. And, and you know, one thing that I think uh, is we talk about the snow that this this hopefully helps is something that you're working on. Yes. Well, yeah, you know, we've been doing some work on the uh, bid for Salt Lake City in the state of Utah to host a future Olympic winter games and Paralympic winter games. And and certainly having snow like this is very, very helpful. Uh, we actually have an event this weekend out at Soldier Hollow, oh, wow. if people, yeah, if you, you mentioned snowshoeing. So at Soldier Hollow, uh, FIS, which is the International Ski Federation, has its uh, uh, World Cup uh, Paranordic, so Paralympic uh, Nordic World Cup out at Soldier Hollow this weekend. So, Oh, uh, I wish I could be there. We're, yeah, you and I are going to be in San Antonio, it. right? That Oh, that's true. Yeah, we'll both be in San Antonio uh, for that. Um, but we're excited because we're actually going to be using our platform Raconto to survey the athletes who are participating and get their feedback on the course and the event itself. So we're super excited. That is, that is very, very exciting. You have people that are going to be doing that with the athletes while in your absence. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's so hard. actually um, the bid is partnered with the university of Utah. And uh, so the university of Utah is actually um, conducting the survey. Brilliant. So yeah, exciting times, exciting times. And speaking of exciting, we've got a really exciting topic, Spencer. Uh, I saw this article last week, I think it was, that was in Harvard Business Review entitled, Hold Your Team Accountable with Compassion, Not Fear by Leanne Davy. And I thought, this topic is right up your alley because you talk about this all the time. So, and, and this is an area that I need a lot of help with too, because I'm not very good at it. So, uh, and it's, it's, it's more on the accountability side and not so much and, on the, but you know, side. you're not alone, Christian. And one of the things I want to point out is, is why it's difficult. And, and we'll talk about certain leaders struggle with this. Others feel like they can hold people accountable. The, there is a, I, there's a, uh, somebody I listened to on a podcast, he calls it the Goldilocks zone, right? Not too hot, not too cold. The challenge is some people may be too aggressive in their accountabilities and, and others not enough. And so how do you balance that? And we'll we'll talk a little bit about that. Well, I, I, I need to figure out that balance because I am not in balance when it comes to this. I never really have been. So I look forward to hearing your strategies. But 
to start us off, um, so I sent you the article. You saw the article. Yeah. What came to your mind when you saw it? So uh, the first thing is, you know, the title is is very interesting because it talks about having compassion and kindness, and you and you pair that with accountability. I think a lot of people really struggle with that idea of how do you how can you have accountability and compassion and, and kindness. And for me, it is, it's actually a, a perfect pairing because when you understand how accountability works, and I, and I think there's oftentimes a misunderstanding of, of what it is, when you understand how it works, it's about helping people desire to do the work that you need them to do. In other words, you're getting, you and I have talked about this so often on the show, you get it discretionary effort, not uh, because people care about the team, they care about the culture, they have a pride in their own work and their effort. They have a desire to do a great job with their team members. They care about how they show up to their team members. They have a, 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 a trust and a respect for the leader and they want to do well for, for the leader. And, and that is something that is earned, not commanded or controlled. And getting that combination right, I see in very, very few teams, you know, 10 to 12% of, of teams get a team where there's this accountability and desire to uh, sustain productivity at a, at a high level because they understand their responsibilities. The, the roles that they have are very clearly laid out. The goals that they have are also very clear. And as a result, they know what's expected. They know what their responsibility is, and they know when, where, and why, and how to achieve those goals. And to get to that point, it takes effort. Well, yeah, you have built, if I remember, you have built, uh, uh, I don't know if a, a catalog is the right word, but I know you've built courses, you've built workshops, focus on accountability, focus on delegation. Mm -hmm. So when you come into a client environment, I mean, what's the most common problem that you're seeing in this respect? Uh, is it the 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 leader the ceo who is micromanaging everything is it the ceo the leader who has let everything slide because they don't want to hurt anybody's feelings you know what are you seeing out there in the world that has basically fostered the demand for the services that you're providing i i, I see all of what you just said i see managers not setting clear expectations or thinking that they've set clear expectations because they said, you know, we we want to increase uh, sales. Well, by how much and by when? They say, you know, by one penny over last year, you know, over last week. There's really it's sometimes a misunderstanding of what it means to to be clear. So a lot of times people aren't clear, and and that happens, Christian, because some leaders and managers aren't really sure what they want. And if there is, if they're not sure, I promise you that your people won't won't be sure. There'll be confusion all throughout the organization. So that's one thing. You mentioned micromanaging. That comes from several different styles of of leadership. 
there are some people who have leadership that have uh, high dominance and they can micromanage from a perspective of, I want you to do it this way. It's a controlling approach. I want you to do it my way because I know best. And that creates a lot of challenges for the employee. First of all, there's no ownership. There's really no engagement. There's no accountability because listen, if I do it your way and it doesn't work, then it wasn't my fault anyway. I knew it wouldn't work. And so you're not getting the best out of, out of your people. Then there's a micromanagement of people who are more perfectionist and they're like, this is the way to do it. It's not because I want to control it. It's just, this is the way that it must be done. And if there's anything that I've seen out in the workforce and, you know, coaching executives and leaders for over 15 years now, there's more than one way, unless it is a proprietary or, you know, you have medical processes, you have standards, you know, making uh, medicines and, and drugs or medical procedures, there are certain things that, you know, must be done a certain way. But even in, in those cases, innovation is happening, right? New ways of, of achieving good outcomes is being found through, through innovation, even though there was a way of doing it. So I think we have to be very, very careful about thinking there's only one way to do a job. People on our team bring very different experiences. And yes, sometimes they have less experience than the leader. Uh, they bring different skill sets. They bring different perspectives, all which are very, very valuable. Then there's the manager that maybe is hoping that the employee will just figure it out and doesn't want to have that tough conversation because that's uncomfortable. And so they will delay or wait longer than they should. And that is, that is antithetical to success as well. If you lay out the success uh, guidelines and the timeline and they're not hitting it, then there needs to be action taken to create the accountability that most leaders desire, even the ones who don't want to have those tough conversations. And what ends up happening to a lot of them, Christian, is they just end up taking on too much because their people aren't following through, so they just end up doing it themselves. And then they're frustrated and stressed and burned out. Yeah, I see a little bit of myself in those uh, in those camps for sure. So you mentioned that that finding this balance, this takes work. So I understand from or I infer from this comment that this is a process that might take some time yeah. to to build this this type of accountability while leading with compassion. So so why don't you kind of walk us through how that process might look and and the experience that you've had with clients working on on developing uh, effective uh, delegation mechanisms accountability strategies etc uh how long does it take an organization to to turn the oil tanker around in these <laughs> you know that that's a great question and some get it a lot faster than others and it can happen very very quickly if you learn the, the techniques and understand what's at stake. Just before I answer that in more detail, Christian, can you really make someone accountable? You mean like force them yeah. or, well, I guess the, 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 it's a very 
horrifically violent analogy, but you know, <laughs> if I held a gun to your head, would you do it? Kind of thing, right? Uh, you know, and and sometimes yes, and sometimes people just don't have the skill, right? Uh, it doesn't matter, but uh, uh, I guess that's the accountability with fear. Right. And so what are some ways to use your metaphor of holding a gun to somebody's head? Well, um, you don't do this, you're going to get fired. Right. Right. Uh, so that's coercion, right? That is, those are yeah. penalties. Uh, there's micromanagement that is just looking over their shoulder and pointing out, okay, that's wrong. That's wrong. No, 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 do it this way. Right. And, and that becomes very excruciating and tiring and, and people want to, you know, you, you want people to respond, as I said, out of desire, not out of fear. So can you control accountability? Yes, for a very short period of time. And it takes a tremendous amount of energy because you're going to be constantly replacing people and you're going to have to continually be expending energy and, and micromanaging or controlling or all that. But when you have people, Christian, that have the desire and respond out of willingness because they, you know, maybe they don't have the skill, but they want to develop and, and grow. And part of the accountability is giving people tasks that they may not know how to do yet. That's where the, the coaching and the mentoring comes in. And when you do that, you give people an opportunity to develop and grow, which is the only way that you as a leader can grow is you develop more capacity on your team. That's a big part of, uh, of, of accountability. And that does take some time, right? Because you're wanting to give your people chances to learn and to grow and time to make mistakes. You see, that's one of the biggest things that I think people struggle with is that, you know, we just, especially small businesses, because the margin for error seems so small and there is fear a lot of times at, at the top of the organization. Because they fear that if if there are too many mistakes, that financially that they won't be able to to recover. But I think there's a way to to manage that as well without micromanaging and allowing people to come up with ideas and plans that may or may not work, but to talk about them and do role plays with with people. In other words, hey, that's an idea. But before we implement it, let's let's talk about it. Let's maybe let's do some more research on that. So you you take time to really vet ideas, but encourage those ideas that may even be be different and maybe do some small experimentation to see what the response is in order to determine if this if there's going to be a large cost. I hopefully that makes sense to people. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, share with you experiences I have with my clients without really describing some of the, the problems because I want to keep confidentiality. But there is a lot of times there's fear at the top of an organization that I can't allow my people to make any mistakes. Well, that actually is causing your people to make more mistakes. And it's the thing that you're focused on, the fear, the, the, the desire to, to get everybody to be perfect is creating an environment that is just not possible for them to perform in. A, they can't hit the standard that you have expected for them. B, if they make a mistake, they, they don't want to talk about it because they know they're going to get beat up. And, and so there, there's just so many negatives that come from such an environment. I've got a couple of other dimensions of fear that I'd like you to address here, Spencer. 
Uh, number one, we've kind of touched on already, which is the fear of conflict. Uh, yeah. I don't want to, I, I want a harmonious work environment. I don't want to have confrontation. So I don't hold people accountable for that reason. But another element of fear that I think is quite interesting is, uh, I don't know if imposter syndrome is the right word for this, but you've done a good job if you hire people that know more than you. But sometimes it's difficult to hold them accountable because they are the expert and you're not, right? So you might be the person who's the visionary and you're dreaming big and all this kind of stuff. uh, And you hire an engineer who's extremely competent at what she does, but you have difficulty holding her accountable or actually making any kind of questions about her judgment because she has so much experience and she knows so much more about the, her area of expertise and her field than you do. So it's like, how can I really hold her accountable? So there's some other dimensions, I think, uh, on this fear. It's not just the fear uh, from the from the the subordinates, but the fear of the of the of the leader uh, saying, you know, am I going to create this disharmonious environment or what do I do with the person who knows so much more than I do, you know, and, and, and then I become the emperor with no clothes. <laughs> you know, that's a really, really thoughtful question. And it's interesting, you know, you talk about the engineer. I was just reading last night, a study from 1918 by the Carnegie, Carnegie Mellon Institute, you know, of technology and, and what they were studying, this was from 1918, what they've been studying for years at that, that time was the impact of technical training on engineers success for engineering colleges. And what they deduced was that 85% of, of an engineer's success comes from their human skills. Only 15% comes from the technical skills. Now, people may say, well, that's over 100 years ago, but there are many, we have shared many studies on this done by Stanford, done by Harvard, done by, you know, many other uh, more up-to-date studies that show that the human capital, the emotional intelligence is so much more important than the technical skills. So that the, there's a couple of things that the challenge is, is that we sometimes value technical skills higher than than maybe the human or the people skills. Now, hopefully we're promoting managers. And a lot of times we, I, I sometimes stop in the middle of my thoughts because I want to clarify what I'm thinking. So forgive me. Who do we usually promote? It's usually the best at the job who are, who has the best technical skills, right? I mean, that's typically who we're hiring are people that have the technical skills. Well, it makes sense. We want an engineer that knows how to engineer. We want doctors that know how to operate and do it safely. We want all those technical skills, right? And so typically we, we promote the, the person that has, that's the best at the job. Well, the problem is, is now they're the manager of other people who do the job. Well, who's the best at doing the job? The new manager. The problem is they not, may not be the best at managing people doing the job. 
And so what happens sometimes, because no one is as good as them, they come in and they control and they tell everyone how to do things the right way or their way because who's the best? And so they create disengagement throughout the entire organization. Why? Because nobody's as good as this person. And so what I'm hopefully painting for you here is, is that if there is a manager that is promoted because they actually have the human skills and the people skills to manage people. And they get to value that. Organizations get to value those skills just as much or more than some of those technical skills. Because what is it going to take for you to grow? It's going to take a leader that can help get the best out of individuals. And those are all about the human skills. Now, what happens to a lot of new managers I see that get promoted is they do have imposter syndrome because they're like, I've got to prove my worth that I know my stuff because we have this culture of promoting people who are technically expert and savvy. So the, the, the idea is, you know, we've, through our whole years of school, we've been taught we have to have the right answer all the time. Our kids are coming out of college having think they know everything because they've been taught to pass every test and get every grade. I mean, and, and sometimes the world of work isn't that way. And so it's not always about being right as a leader. It's about understanding people and how to get the best out of them. And so if we as leaders value our, our managers more for those human skills, I think we'll see more come out of those people with the technical skills. So I didn't really answer your question about how do you deal with that person who quote unquote knows more than you. I've been in that situation before personally, and I've had to fire people that have greater experience than I did. And, and that was really difficult, but ultimately it's about, are they completing the task to the standards that are expected? So I think one of the first things that you have to do is set very, very clear expectations as to what's expected. Regard, you know, someone can conflate my my intelligence or my technical expertise in engineering to what are the right choices for the company to make in engineering, and that's not up to the maybe the the employee. They can certainly bring their concerns and ideas to the manager. That's the whole idea of Kaizen, right? Or, or Lean Six Sigma is if, you know, people on the front line see something that needs to change, the, they bring it to management. Well, but ultimately the strategy and direction of the organization is, is a managerial purview. That's the, uh, under the purview of, of management. So they are the ones who set the standards and the goals and the directions. And so it is up to you to make sure that you are very clear about what's expected. And if someone who has greater experience than you that is not achieving those expectations, then regardless of, of how smart they are or experienced they are, you need to have a conversation with that person to make sure that they're accomplishing what they need to accomplish. Well, a couple of thoughts on that. Number one, uh, you know, sometimes we promote people to managers because that's the only way that we have to to uh, to get them more money. <laughs> to be honest, right? Uh, and and so you know, sometimes organizations might take a look at things and say, "Hey, are there other ways that we can recognize financially?" the impact that someone's having in the organization without promoting them to a management position, you know? So, uh, you know, I think, you know, there are a lot of, and, and, and that's not a new thing. I mean, that's been around for a while. I remember back in the nineties when I was working with IBM, they had these, this kind of dual track. You were around in the 1900s. Uh, 
1990s. <laughs> I know uh, before the millennium had a two uh, when it still had a one as the leading digit. That's uh, right. <clears throat> you know, they, they had a kind of a dual track uh, approach then. Uh, but my second point, again, going back to to even earlier, like 1918, you're reading these stories that are, or these uh, studies that are over 100 years old. Um, you know, one of the, one of the, I don't know if it's a buzzword so much, but maybe it is. This phrase wasn't around, I don't think, in 1918. It is today, and it's this notion of psychological safety and, uh, you know, employers um, putting greater emphasis on the mental well-being of of employees and so when it comes to holding a team accountable uh while being compassionate and creating uh an environment of psychological safety what are you seeing in today's world i mean it probably wasn't in the vernacular in, in 1918 but it certainly is today what are you seeing today when it comes to psychological safety well they called it judgment back then right <laughs> They say, you know, good, good decision making, good judgment, uh, uh, charisma, being able to get the best out of people. You know, so some of the things that they used back then, by the way, that study has been referenced by, in, you know, Forbes and Inc. And, and so many other magazines. I'm not just pulling that out of out of my hat. That is the, I searched for that research because I couldn't I mean, I, I, I couldn't find the reference for the longest time. And I finally was able to, to find it. What I see is there are individuals on teams where there is not psychological safety, where people have PTSD. They have fear that um, they're going to get a call or they're going to get a text or a Slack or, you know, you've got, it, it's like, it's almost Orwellian, right? And you've got someone just watching you all the time. I remember uh, I don't know if you ever watched uh, Charlie Chaplin movies. And there's a movie called Modern Times, speaking of 1918, right? I mean, this was the, this was the, the 20s. And in that movie, they, Charlie Chaplin envisioned what it would look like in the future. It was all about productivity, right? The human was just a, actually a machine. It was, you're, you're basically having the Industrial Revolution and we had the, you know, the dawn of the, of the, no longer the cottage industry, but the assembly line. And all he did all day long was tighten two bolts. Uh, do you remember that? Yeah. Uh, vaguely, vaguely. Yeah. <laughs> so and it, it's, it's really funny, but it, it, the vision of what it would be like in the future, and, and some of it's actually not wrong, but one of the scenes that was, well, there were two scenes. One was lunch break and, and it had a machine. He'd come and like it'd bring a corn in the cob and it would just spin while he was eating it. Uh, and, feed him as fast so he could get back to work. The other was going to the restroom. In the restroom was this huge monitor, which the CEO of the company could look in and say, hey, get back to work. So today, you know, with all our technology, we have people monitoring us. Are they, you know, are on their phones? Are they, are they messaging? Are they emailing? And, and they want to monitor people, especially in the re remote environment. Well, that creates, you know, you and I have talked about this in past podcast, this presenteeism where people feel like they have to be on and present and they're not being productive. And so there's a, you know, this is another article we probably ought to, ought to talk to uh, in the future. And it just came out in the Harvard Business Review and it's called, oh, I don't have it in front of me. It's, I have, it's downstairs. I'm reading it, but it's all about valuing busyness. 
And sometimes busyness is is not what what we need. And so we've got managers that are wanting to control every action and time that their people are on the clock, and they're and they're getting employees that are just like, I I can't take it. I've got to go because I'm not trusted. I'm not valued. Um, there are times when I need to you know take a take a break, and we know that. There's so much to productivity that comes from the mental mindset, the physical mind, you know, the, the physical ability, taking care of your health and, um, and also just giving people space to be able to think. And that is sometimes not happening in today's world that is so frenetic. We're laying people off. And, you know, we went through this back in 2008 where we went through all those major layoffs and the people that were left had to really pick up the slack of the people that were gone. Well, that's been happening in my experience since then till now, and we're going through it again. And so what, what I think is happening is, is that we have less psychological safety than we need right now because micromanagement over expectations, unclear expectations, and um, not making it safe for people to, to make mistakes. Before the show, I was talking to you about this idea of the Hegelian dialectic, right? You've heard of that. You have a thesis and you have an antithesis. And sometimes the best solution is right in the middle. So what's the thesis? Well, we have to control our people to get the most out of them. What's the antithesis? Well, we need to give them freedom and have compassion and, and understanding and psychological safety. Well, the best answer is somewhere in between. We need to make sure that our people are you know, providing us with a full day's work. And at the same time, we need to give them some freedom. Your leadership ability is the ability to manage that. Okay. Well, let's, let's uh, add this dimension here, Spencer. You talked about earlier, we have a, a generation of people and I'm not, I don't want to sound judgmental here, but it's, it's going to come across this way and I don't mean it to, but, but, we as a society have engineered uh, through childhood and through high school and college uh, an expectation of success, right? Which is, uh, and, and so everybody got, gets an award. Yeah. So you've got a, you've got a, a workforce that's coming in, you know, after graduation, uh, who have succeeded at every level and don't understand what failure looks like. So, so how do you, how do you handle this? How do you find this balance uh, when, you know, for them, it's always been over here. It's like, yeah, no, that's it. That's a great question. I have excelled uh, throughout my entire life and now I'm coming in here and for the first time I'm failing. Uh, I, I, I remember watching a, uh, a, a basketball game and uh, you know, the, the person they were interviewing was like, okay, well, you know, I was the star in, in AAU. I was at the star at high school. I was the star in college. You know, I could jump this high. I could run this fast. I could do this. I could do that. Now I'm coming into a league where everybody can do that, you know, and it's the first time in that person's life, or they've actually encountered 
or been in an environment where they there are people that are better than them you know right uh uh and so how do you handle that kind of transition i i imagine this adds a, a new dimension to holding people accountable with compassion and I, i'm curious what you're seeing out there in the workforce as as uh the next generation of workers is actually coming into the system i, I have been seeing this for a long time I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I, for seven years, I recruited for the University of Utah Eccles School of Business at, for the Business Scholars Program. And I recruited mostly kids out of, out of Nevada. Uh, also had my own children recently in college. I had a daughter who graduated from the nursing program, which is a, 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 a incredible program at BYU, very difficult to get into. And one of the things that the school there, the nursing school at BYU recognizes that they were creating machines, just test taking machines that did not have the human skills that we've been talking about. And they made a correction for that because it was all about, you know, the test scores. What, what I have seen in recruiting kids and my, my daughters and kids have seen is that there's so much anxiety right now because of exactly what you're talking about. Kids are coming from having experienced success their entire life or being in the top 3% of their school. Now they're in a college with everybody is the top 3% and they're getting a B for the first time and they are apoplectic, right? I mean, they're having seizures because they are uh, so anxious about failure. And so they're seeing psychologists and, and all kinds of things. I'll tell you, Christian, I want to hire people on my team that have experienced some failure that have experienced some setback, that have experienced that their ideas have not been accepted. Because when you get into the working world, you may have a great idea. I think that your perspective is, is the idea and the approach that the CEO or you know, the C-suite should be listening to and they don't. And you know some people feel crushed because they're not being heard. Well, you are being heard. This is where this is where we have to manage those the, those opposites, right? And that is, is that I think setting expectations is helpful in this situation. If you've got somebody new, um, let them know that listen, it's going to be challenging. It's going to be difficult. You may not be able to hit this standard. Uh, I was coaching uh, a a director in a construction company. Great individual. And he has a personality very similar to, to yours. And Christian, I admire you so much. And I feel like you are somebody that has some of the, you know, you, you, you tend to underestimate your leadership skills. You actually bring some of the best leadership skills to, that an organization desires because you are innately desiring to get the best out of people voluntarily and not through coercion. And in my opinion, that is something that we need more of. But we need to do it in a way that uh, is assertive and not authoritarian or not aggressive. And when you have that combination with what you bring, it's magical. So this individual was struggling because they had a team of new project managers that he felt like what was happening is, is that he was taking on all the most difficult projects because he didn't feel like they were ready for those, for those projects. And... And so we spent a lot of time. I said, when are they going to be ready? How are you going to know that they're ready? Part of your job is to be able to help them to become ready, but to give them the opportunities where they will struggle. 
and where they could fail, but be there for them to help mentor and coach them. Now, the danger is, is that you could help them too much. Why is that a danger? Well, then they're, you're, you're overtasking yourself, right? Uh, yes. <laughs> and then they're not really learning what they need to learn uh, to develop those skills. Right. It, well, you're overtasking yourself because they're becoming dependent on yeah. you. And you can't, you can't do that. You want to create empowered, engaged, and, and people who are willing to understand that you know, I get to give my all. And you know, if sometimes it's not enough, I'm not going to get the snot beat out of me if, if I didn't meet that, you know, that deadline and I'm going to recommit and rededicate. And we'll talk about how to deal with that in just a second. Yeah, you definitely don't, you, you, you want to avoid creating dependence and, and, uh, you know, squashing initiative. And so, be very careful with helping too much. You can guide. And one of the ways to do that, Christian, is if, you know, somebody has an idea that, you know, you're talking to and you're in your planning meetings with them and they're like, Hey, I'd like to run my project this way, or I'd like to, I'd like to do this with my team, or I'd like to try this thing out. Talk it through with them, role play with them. I don't just say, Oh, that won't work. I've tried that before. Because right, then again, you, you squash initiative and, and creativity. So talk it through with them. Help them understand the consequences of their ideas and their decisions. And just get them to, to think. And in some cases, you might say, well, give it a shot. Because people learn from their failures. And so that's one of the things that I like to point out to people who are perfectionist. I talk to them about the scientific method. What is the scientific method? It's really proving things and failing until you find something that works, is it not? And yeah, so one absolutely. of the things I like, what's that? I, I said, absolutely. It reminds me of, and we may have talked about this before. I was, uh, um, it, there was this YouTube video of a kid that was like two years old that was eating an apple with a knife, like a sharp knife. And he's, and he's just, he's like 18 months old. He's just, he's cutting this apple and, and, you know, parents in the Western world are just beside themselves. Like, how could you let a small child play with this sharp instrument? That's so deadly. Right. But, uh, where they come from, I mean, you need to know how to use these tools. So you might as well start learning. Right. So then they figure it out, you know, <laughs> uh, I, I know we're, we're running short on time here. And you've probably got a lot to say, but one question I have, uh, it was mentioned in the articles, you know, sometimes you, you, you do all of this stuff, you, 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 you follow all of these uh, techniques, you develop all these skills, but sometimes it just doesn't work out, yeah. you know, and, and, um, you know, eventually you get to, you, you arrive at the conclusion that you got to part ways. And so how do you do that in a compassionate manner, you know, uh, rather than just saying you're fired? Do it over Twitter. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, I, I think there are, first of all, there are several non-coaching options that we haven't talked about that cause people to, to sometimes let people go. And actually firing someone right away is is a non-coaching option. We think we're do, being good managers because, you know, hey, they're not doing the job. we got to get rid of them. There's the, there's the do-nothing approach when people don't, 
follow through with what they've committed to. I mean, that's a, a, a classic non-accountability, right? That's burying your head in the sand, hoping they change. There's the, um, here's how I would do it. Again, that takes away initiative. Or here's how you're going to do it. Again, uh, if it doesn't work, there's no accountability. There's no ownership. There's the group grope, right? That's where you bring everybody together. If you have one or two people messing up, you bring everybody together and you say, this has got to stop. Well, now you've demotivated everybody who's doing it right. That's a that's a terrible way to do it. Um, then there's, you know, the the ultimatum. That's a that's a non-coaching option. So if you have done everything that you can to make clear expectations, you've created an environment where people can learn and grow and be safe, and you've uh, followed up when people aren't achieving their goals, and you've escalated the consequences, you've given rewards for good results, you have, uh, and sometimes the consequence, Christian, can just be disappointment. I remember having, you know, Kelvin, I've talked to you about him for many, many times, uh, just just the fact that he was disappointed in me was consequence enough, was punishment enough. And having those, those, those awkward and uncomfortable conversations can sometimes be enough of a, of a punishment that that's really all you need to do. But sometimes it's like, hey, one of the things that he told me, Christian, when I was a uh, the director of, of it was, this is a publicly traded company, he set expectations and said, Spencer, I need you to be here by in it within six months and he was very clear about what here meant he was clear about the time frame and he, he said if you can't get there i'm gonna have to make a change well when the six months came he promoted me because like well done and that's that's the reward that i'm talking about right but on the other hand if i didn't meet that constant you know that that expectation then i was going to be without a job and i and i knew it and i wasn't looking for another job why because of the trust that I had in him, the desire I had to succeed because I wanted to contribute. So I wasn't looking for something else. I put all of my eggs in that basket. I'm going to go for it. And he rewarded that. And so I think we have to be very, very careful that we've done everything within our power before we get to that. And if we get to the point where we have to have, uh, you know, a, a, a termination, we get to be compassionate. And I'll tell you, those are some of the hardest meetings I've ever had. Christian is to sit down with people and say, you know, we are grateful that you've been here on the team and this is just not the right fit for you or, or for us. And, um, thank you. And you know, this, you know, there's just no easy way to do it. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. So some people resort to emails or Twitters or, or phone calls. No, you need to have this kind of conversation face-to-face. -face. And um, I've had some successes and I've had some failures. And sometimes you feel like, you know, that, that the firing is unjustified. You know, I've, I've been let go before. I don't know if you ever have. You probably haven't because you're pretty darn perfect. <laughs> um, and no. I like... Yeah. And sometimes I feel like that was the wrong decision, but it always turned out okay for me. And I think that's one of the ways to be compassionate is to recognize that maybe there's a better opportunity out there for, for someone. Or uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the opposite of that. I was working with a nonprofit out of uh, California and the HR director refused to confront, I mean, egregious bad behavior. And so 
the behavior continued and created it created incredible pressure and frustration for the rest of the employees. We're like, why is this not being addressed? Here we are doing everything in our power to to do a good job and provide service and help our community. And this person is taking advantage and it's awful. And so it created so much dysfunction in the organization because they were unwilling to address. And finally, somebody else had to come in and step in over that HR director and make that termination. And uh, that's, that is, that is way worse than keeping that individual there. And so sometimes that's the compassionate thing for the organization is just to say, you know what, goodbye. <laughs> that's not acceptable here. This type of behavior is, will not be accepted. And I think if that's a message that in some ways is compassionate because they need to learn that it's okay to be accountable and committed and hardworking, because if you're not, you create pain throughout the entire organization. So in a way, that's a form of compassion. I don't know. What do you think? No, I, I totally agree. I totally agree with that sentiment. So wrapping us up here, Spencer, before we close, any parting thoughts when it comes to holding your team accountable with compassion? Yes. I, I think one of the things that's really important for leaders to do is to become very, very self-aware of where your strengths are as a leader and how you hold people accountable. There's very different approaches to accountability based on your behavioral preferences and styles. So know what those are. Understand what is helping you and what is hurting you. Are you controlling too much? Are you avoiding too much? Are you micromanaging? Just learn what it is that you do and create uh, some, some habits and some patterns that begin to shift you out of that into a more productive type of, of accountability. And I think one of the ways to do that is to create some, some tools and some systems and some, and there's so many great available out there. And I, and I teach them to, to my clients so that's one. Number two, uh, take a take a delegation uh, survey. I have one that just kind of lets you know where you are with with allowing your people to take on responsibility and how accountable you are and how good you are at giving, uh, you know, or setting clear expectations and creating an environment of of accountability. So uh, I'll put the a link to that to that quick survey in the uh, in the in the show notes. And I invite our listeners to uh, to take that self assessment. So that's that's those are some of my thoughts. What about you? What 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 do you think we need to wrap up with? Well, I'm going to take this self assessment. So we'll put the link, like you said, in the description in the show notes, so people can go out there and they can see where they are on the spectrum of uh, leading with accountability or you know accountability with compassion, not fear, and delegating. Um, I yeah. think that's super interesting. Uh, Spencer, as always, I, I learn a ton every time we come on and have a conversation, and I'm sure that your clients do. I know they do. I've I've talked to some of them, uh, and they love the work that you do for them. So, if uh, people hearing this podcast or watching this podcast on YouTube or other channels, if they want to learn more about the work that you do with organizations, how you could potentially help them to become a, a more effective leader, how to lead with accountability and compassion, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Thank you, Christian. I appreciate that. Just look me up on LinkedIn, Spencer Horn on LinkedIn. 
certainly you can send me an email, spencer at altium, that's A-L-T-I-U-M leadership.com. And Christian, how can we find you? And, and how can people learn more about Rakanto and what you're using that with uh, with so many clients with? How can people find me? It sounds like a Where's Waldo thing, right? Uh, yeah. from our how can we find Where you? is he? Where is Christian in this picture of busy moving people? Uh, LinkedIn, easy. Just look for Christian Napier on LinkedIn. You'll find me there. Uh, and uh, if you want to know any more about what we're doing with Raconto, which means story in Esperanto to help unlock the power of storytelling in your organization, uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn, visit our website, raconto.io, R-A-K-O-N-T-O.io. Spencer, once again, a, a genuine pleasure to have this conversation. Looking forward to a next conversation the following week. And in the meantime, listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll catch you again soon.